Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, you may have noticed there are a lot more wildflowers in dedicated sections of our parklands. I certainly have. And today I'll be joined by garden designer Ingrid Smith to find out more and why it is so important. Yvonne Hogan is editor of Health and Living magazine and she enlisted the help of some heavyweight health and wellness experts. You all know that I at this stage love this kind of thing. So I've invited her on to share with us what she has learned. And on the subject of learning, I'll also be joined by US author Stephen Rogers on his book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues, in which he outlines how we can help our black community now. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm good. I had my second vaccine without incident. So that was a good thing. The heat wave has meant most nights we've gone to the beach. I'm sleeping under a sheet, which generally only happens when I'm abroad. And I've just been sweating about the place. It's strange, I think, to be in this weather and not on holiday, isn't it? I think it's easier when you're just spending your days at the beach or the pool and getting handed all your meals, trying to carry on as normal has been a little trying, but I am absolutely loving it. And I know that travel restrictions are lifting and some of you are getting off on holidays abroad. I think it's nice to have that kind of weather here in Ireland as we're staycationing. And I had a staycation of my own. I went to a glamping site in Leash with my sister-in-law and her family too. And it was so gorgeous. It's called Glamping Under the Stars and I can't recommend it enough. We stayed in their new hobbit houses so in the proper bed we had our own toilet and shower and a full kitchen a few steps away so a million miles from camping I know but still a bit different and we had day trips in the sweltering heat to be landlocked in a heat wave is an experience when you've grown up coastal so we even took a dip in a river by a waterfall we toasted marshmallows in the evening it was a blissful recharge of the batteries And I have an 18 month old nephew who was with us and I did get a hold of him as a newborn bundle and then mainly through lockdowns saw him on Zoom for the best part of a year. So it was so, so lovely to follow him around and just hang out with the rest of his family, the people we love. And I saw an ad on the TV the other night with um, the actor David Gowen in it and he's talking about the reopening of the pubs and what that ability to connect and catch up will be. And I actually started to cry and it really surprised me. I think we're also used to everything now and still very much in it to a certain extent. But sometimes we forget the impact it's had on us all. There could have been my hormones too, but it did hit me like a sledgehammer, as did the sight of my kids playing with their cousins in the evening sun while we sat and laughed with their parents. So that was a big part of my health and wellness this week. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. So I have noticed in my local area and throughout the city really that much of our green spaces have been left to grow wildflowers as part of a pollination project. The decline of bees is now a global issue and it's been so gorgeous to see small incremental changes being brought in to affect big change. Ingrid Smith is a garden designer and assistant chair of the Garden and Landscape Designers Association and she joins me on the line now. Hello Ingrid, how are you? Good morning Claire. Ingrid, I believe this is a drum you've been beating for quite some time. I have been, um, yeah, going on about it for quite a while. 
Um, and it's amazing that you've, you've raised the subject because it's in the public consciousness now, uh, particularly this year. You're seeing it everywhere, the motorways, public parks, roundabouts, private households. This is a good news story, Claire. So what is it? What, what is rewilding? Um, so rewilding is a direct response to help restore healthy population of, of pollinating bees and insects. And it's been done, um, it's been done in response to the decline in the species. Um, so it's to reverse pollinator loss. And why do we need pollinators? Uh, they're very important. They're unpaid workers worth in excess of 53 million euros to the economy annually. So what pollinators do, as they move from flower to flower looking for nectar, they'll pick up a little piece of pollen on their legs or on their fur and they'll move to another plant. And bits of these pollen will fall off. And in the process of them following off, the process of fertilization occurs. And that's where the likes of a strawberry or an apple is created. So our food crops are created through pollination. But isn't that a very old school way to produce food and not how we're producing food now that we are genetically modifying it or we're spraying fields with pesticides to kill certain things and then we're killing the good along with it? Yeah, well, the reason they're in decline, Claire, is four things. There's hunger, lack of nesting sites and the use of use of pesticides and also climate change. Um, so if we are to restore um, a healthy environment and reverse the economic impact on agriculture and our fruit crops and do it in a natural way, this is the way to do it. So the GM route, is it the route we want to go to? I'm not really sure. Yeah, which is why you hear so much now about buying local and I think sometimes when we hear yeah. about climate change and, and all that goes with it, we get a bit overwhelmed and think, how can we make a difference? Yeah. Is it too late? And certainly from the experts that I've spoken through uh, to through this job, mm. say there's actually a lot more positive stuff going on out there and maybe it should be marketed a little bit more that way so people don't give up yeah. and, and small changes really can make a difference. So while the billionaires of, of the world are, are planning what planet they're going to live on next, we really can make small changes like this. So uh, what can we be yeah. doing in our gardens to help? You're right, Claire. And it is, it, is, it is easy to get overwhelmed and say, oh, it's all going to hell in a handbag and throw your hands up. There's, there's loads of things that you can do and they don't have to be life-changing. Um, I suppose the reason, the hunger issue, first of all, um, the likes of planting bedding plants that are completely reft of nectar is something that needs to be looked at. So I think if we educate ourselves about what plants that are still pretty um, are better for nectar within our gardens, that's one way we can go. Uh, another simple way, and everybody who cuts the grass out there weekly and is probably tired of doing it, we've got, we've got an out for you. You don't have to cut your grass as often and you can put a pollinator label on your garden and get away with it. So there's a thing, an initiative called No Mow May, bit of a mouthful. If you let your grass grow and let the dandelion flowers flower and then wait until the end of May to cut your grass, 
those dandelion flowers are an amazing source of nectars for our bees and our insects. And then at the end of May, you can cut it. It still looks neat. And then give it six weeks. Let the clover flower. It's flowering at the moment and the bees are all over it. And it's really pretty. Then cut it. And then the next crop of wildflowers within your lawn will flower again. So your cutting regime, by simply reducing the amount of cutting that you do of your grass and letting a little bit of the wildflowers flower, that can really make a difference. Um, in addition to that, flowering trees, for example, um, they're brilliant for nectar, so flowering cherries, etc. So if you're putting a small tree in your garden, a flowering tree, um, Bang for a book is brilliant for um, providing nectar for pollinating insects. We'll get back to the grass in just a minute because I think you, we, we sort of got sold that the manicured green lawn was the only way to go and anything that jumped in the middle of that was to be yeah. eradicated. But you mentioned yeah. non-flowering plants. So so what plants are they that we're looking out for? So if you're just putting in, see, people want low maintenance, don't they? So they're putting into their garden large green leafy plants that don't need much mm. looking after and imagine that flowering plants will take more work is that true well no i mean the likes of ivy ivy flowers if it's let flower it flowers later on in the season it's a valuable source flowering trees are very low maintenance uh, you don't have to do anything with the tree really except collect some leaves um there's a full list of plants that are, are available that um, herbaceous perennials, for example, are the type of flower that comes back every year. So you don't have to plant them every year. So if you go from bedding plants to herbaceous perennials, they flower every year, then they die away. You cut them to the base when they start getting raggy and they'll come back next year. That's pretty much low maintenance in my books. And what about all these gorgeous wildflowers that we're seeing on our roundabouts and, and hedgerows and that now at the moment that have been deliberately planted? Because I have a yeah. friend who's a landscape gardener and says every second yeah. person is asking about that. But apparently that's easier said than done. We all want the poppies it and the dog daisies and, and, and all of that. Yeah. And I've even seen a couple of people posting on social media what they'd hoped for. And, and what they ended up with looks a bit more like a, a load of weeds. So how do you get it looking <laughs> that pretty? Yeah, uh, to be honest, a wildflower meadow is a whole other, other show in itself, Claire. Um, so there's to make a distinction, there's our existing native wildflowers and the seeds for which exist in the ground. And it's a matter of not sowing seeds and letting them come up. So that's what you see on the motorways, for example. They're in the ground anyway. And then there's another type of wildflower meadow, which is more a mixture of grasses and herbaceous, and it's a deliberate planting. Um, and there is more maintenance involved in them, but they also provide pollen. So there is room for the two. What I would warn against is there's um, there's been an awful lot of availability of these packs of wildflower seeds available in the garden centre and when you actually drill down into the contents of these seeds they're not native they could be from not even this country um, and they're not going to do what it says on the packet 
Um, there are producers of wildflower seeds within Ireland. So if you wanted to create a wildflower meadow, for example, they don't thrive on healthy soil. So if I was to create a wildflower meadow, I'd be scraping off the top layer of nutrient rich soil and planting into subsoil. And it's quite complex, but it's been sold to the public as an easier thing than it actually is. So I'd, I'd tread carefully with the creation of a wildflower meadow from a pack from a garden centre because it's promising more than it can deliver. And do rewilding sections only do their work in the summer? What do they look like in the winter? They would generally need to be managed and cut down after flowering and left fallow um, during the winter. So there is there is a regime that local authorities have to adopt and it's an educated re- regime where they would need to cut them down from a tidiness point of view, but also to provide space for the new growth for the following year. So they they do they are cut down. So they're back to being a mown space outside of the, the flowering season. So it's just about changing our mindset, really. I mean, you don't have to have your back garden completely wild but certain areas can make a big impact and a difference are we too late into the summer now Ingrid or is there something people can ask for at their garden centre now are we too late no we're not too late so uh cut back on the cutting the grass isn't growing great at the moment to be honest with the the heat um but what I'd say is you know relax on the cutting um what I what I would say is Maybe before you take actions, I would tap into the resources available in a website called pollinators.ie. And this is the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan, which sets out steps that you can take as a gardener to improve the homes for pollinators within your garden. And I'd start with a bit of education first. Uh, and when you there's lists of plants within that and once you've processed what's in that it's super easy to read by the way it's not difficult it's not very wordy it's in video format and when you've had a read of that or a look at the videos then maybe say okay I'm going to get some foxglove seeds now you could put a foxglove seed down in the garden now and you've started on the right track for pollinators Um, but I'd start with a bit of education first and then move on from there to make sure you're on the right track. But no, it's never too late. Well, I hope Jeff Bezos is looking down at our wild meadows from space, (laughs) wishing he hadn't ever left. Ingrid Smith, garden designer and assistant chair of the Garden and Landscape Designers Association. Thanks very much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you, Claire. Coming up after the break, author Stephen Rogers on why the Black Lives Matter movement compelled him to write his book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement was an awakening moment for many, particularly in the white community, who began perhaps to see racism in a different way, that beyond racial slurs and attacks, there were systems in place that we all played a part in. But a year on from the death of George Floyd, what changes are really happening and what intentions set to do more fall away? Stephen Rogers is a former Harvard Business School professor and his book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues, outlines some of the ways in which we can help the black community now. He joins me on the line. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Claire, good afternoon. It's my pleasure to meet you. How are you? 
I'm very good. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what led you to write this book? Well, I am a former professor at Harvard Business School where I retired in 2019. Um, I taught two classes there. One is um, entrepreneurial finance and another is titled Black Business Leaders and Entrepreneurship. And my background, Clara, is very much connected to that Black Business Leaders and Entrepreneurship topic. And that is, I am in the old school vernacular of uh, words in the United States. I'm a race man. I'm a man, a Black man who looks at things through the lenses of a Black man and see how things affect the Black community. And I ended up writing the book after George Floyd was murdered. And I wrote the book in response to white friends as well as people that I heard asking and saying that white friends were asking them, what can they do to help black people? And many black people, Clara, were annoyed and frustrated. And sometimes they would say to their white friends, I don't know, don't ask me. Um, I didn't create the problem, you did. But I thought that we needed to give a different answer because I believe that it was a teachable moment and that the reality is that black people, we can't pull ourselves out of this financial and economic malaise that we're in. And we need the help of white people. And therefore, I thought this was an opportunity for us to actually teach white people how they can help us. And with the end result and the objective being to make this country a better version of itself, to help eliminate uh, the wealth gap between whites and blacks. And I'll close with saying, it has always been my belief as a professor at Harvard Business School in finance. And when I went to college, I majored in black history as all also. But it's always been my belief that um, over 50% of the problems between Blacks and whites uh, racially has to do with financing, and that is the wealth gap. And that until we eliminate the wealth gap uh, in America between Blacks and whites, we will always have problems like George Floyd. We will always have civil unrest. We will ha always have problems with protests because I believe that those things are just symptoms of the root cause of the problem, and that is the wealth gap. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about racial wealth disparity that you discuss at length in the book. Is this a global issue? Is it, is it the same across the world? It, it, it is, in fact, a global issue. Um, I don't know if it is the same degree across the world. For example, in the UK, I know that there's a disparity in the UK as well between Blacks and whites, but I don't know if it's, it's as, as extreme as here in America. In America, uh, the average white family, Claire, has a net worth of about $170,000 compared to $17,000 for the average Black family. And it's my contention that that wealth gap was created um, basically by the federal government and state governments in America. And it was very intentional that, the, that our government in the United States did things intentionally to enrich whites, while at the same time, they were very focused on impoverishing Blacks. And those three things very uh, specifically were um, sanctioning the uh, enslavement of black people for 246 years in America without giving any kind of reparations. Uh, that was financially to the benefits of whites in essence, subsidizing white wealth while at the same time impoverishing blacks. The second thing was this thing called black codes where laws were created for the purpose of in, in, uh, imprisoning black people who were then expected to work for free um, over for, to, to, to take care of their sentence. And that happened for two, uh, 60 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And then 40 years after that, our federal government 
um, actually subsidize white wealth by creating a program where whites uh, were given subsidies for the mortgages of their homes. And they were given guarantees by the federal government when they went to the bank. 90% uh, of their home was guaranteed by the federal government. Whereas the federal government was very intentional and said, none of these guarantees will be given in the language of the federal government. None of these guarantees will be given to Negroes who are buying homes. So there were things that were done intentionally to create that wealth disparity. And the wealth disparity, as I stated before, is sort of the symptom of the problem that we have today. And as you say, it's been a learning moment for all of us um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think the discussion around racism, in, in a way, ignorantly, there's a lot of people who believe that they'd never shout a racial slur or attack someone based on the color of their skin. And yet the Black Lives Matter movement made so many white people realize that it goes far deeper than that. Yes. And that there are so many other things that you can do to bring about equality. You, you, you nailed it on the head. I've always said that the racial problems that we have in America and throughout the world are not simply because whites wanna be mean to black people. In my opinion, it is primarily because of financial issues that this had to do originally, this discrimination originally had to do with, I need to gain financially at your expense. And if we accept that and recognize that based on history, we recognize that as a root cause, then we know that the way, if you really wanna address this, the, the way to address it is not to simply say, I've never made a racial, a negative racial comment. The way to sincerely address it, as I say in my book, um, a letter to my white friends and colleagues, what you can do now to help the black community. Um, what you can do now is have a kind heart and a logical mind. And if you have that and you read my book, you'll see that you need to do more than just simply say, I have not uh, quoted a racial or stated a racial epithet. You need to actually do some specific things to help resolve this issue uh, that is rooted in financial. And let me just close with this. You know, this, as you cited and asked a question earlier about uh, Europe, um, what we know, for example, is slavery was abolished by the UK in, in essence by 1843. And the government of the UK, they took out loans to pay the former slave owners, the white slave owners. They took out loans to pay them for the loss of their slaves. And that loan was 20 million pounds. And that was in 1843. It took them until 2015 to pay those loans off. In 2015, um, those loans, 20 million pounds, was approximately 16 billion pounds. So we see that same model, and that is the enrichment of whites at the expense of blacks in the United States that I cited before, and then even in the UK uh, with the reparations program that went to white slave owners. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to US author Stephen Rogers about his new book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues. Can we talk a little, uh, Stephen, about the health implications? This is a health and wellness show, and although I do think the discussion on race is a health and wellness issue because the impact of being made to feel less than on a person has to be huge. But I've also been shocked to read that people of color are less likely to receive health care that they need right. and black women are more likely to die in childbirth. Yes. In a modern society, the, the, these stats are shocking. 
So what are the health implications of these disparities? Well, the reality is almost in every category, if we look at Black Americans in terms of, as it relates to socioeconomic circumstances, which is, and, and health is a part of that as far as I'm concerned, we see that health problems tend to be synonymous with poverty. And the reality is in America, um, Black people, we're an impoverished race, um, financially speaking. W.E.B. Du Bois, the great scholar from Harvard, over 50 years ago, he said, it's one thing to be an impoverished person, but it's worse to be an impoverished race. And 35% of Blacks in America have zero net worth. That's uh, assets minus liabilities equals net worth. And what we know, Claire, is we know that if you are from an impoverished uh, background, that your health care is going to be much lower and much more um, at risk than someone who is from a middle class or an upper middle class family. And the reason is because they just can't afford it. They can't afford medical uh, attention uh, because many instances they don't actually have insurance. Uh, secondly, um, the root cause of many health problems, as you well know, is your diet. And so what we know is if you're an impoverished person, you actually can't afford to eat well, that your diet is primarily consisting of things that are very inexpensive and things that are very inexpensive typically are very heavily laden with sugar and starches. And the result of that is um, health problems that end up being symptoms of the root cause of the problem. And that is what you ended up eating. So when we look at health problems and we look at, and I'm going to put one other item in there in terms of, uh, I just mentioned the physical health, but also crime. I believe crime is also part of and comes under the un umbrella of health and health care. And what we know is we know impoverished communities um, have higher rates of crime. And that's simply because, again, people are finding ways to try to survive and they start turning on each other as a result of being impoverished and therefore um, engaging in cr criminal activities, primarily against each other as a result of that. And we know that that happened. And I was looking at a documentary about the history of Italians in America. And we saw that with the Italian community when they first started coming to America as an impoverished group, as well as Irish, uh, when they first started coming to America as an impoverished uh, group of people. So uh, those are all of the implications of health implications of an impoverished people. Where do you stand on racial quotas? Do you think that that's a good idea? I think a big awakening, certainly for me during the Black Lives Matter movement was the idea that lots of white people would say, but I, I don't even see the color of your skin. And so many people said, well, hang on, I want you to, and I want you yeah. to celebrate that. And I want you to know Absolutely. that. And that was a huge learning moment for many and certainly for me. So do you think on our TV screens, in our offices, wherever we are, that there should be a quota? It's, it's discussed when it comes to gender. Should it be discussed right. when it comes to race also? I, I, you know, the word quota is, an, is, a, is, a, is a word that tends to result in very negative responses. But I would say that I love the spirit of it. And I believe that it is absolutely desperately needed. That in essence, um, quotas were created by the federal government when they endorsed slavery of Black people. That in essence, they were given a quota, a subsidy. They were, they were um, um, subsidizing and 
um, um, creating a quota for wealth for a certain group of people. And those people were white skinned. So what we see is quotas and, and you know, a synonym for it can be intentional focus on race uh, for, for a specific purpose. And therefore what we know is uh, whites have benefited from quotas that have been given and created by the federal government of the United States, as well as governments throughout the world, that whites have benefited for this. So quotas have been very intentional efforts to uh, benefit a certain group of people. And so I'm a strong believer that the only way that black people can catch up in the United States, that black people can catch up in the UK, is that we have to do something similarly intentional. And that is, we need to do something that makes sure that they, black people are included. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but I believe when you have the absence of Black people that you are not uh, pursuing uh, the best and the brightest. I come from a mindset that says that when you pursue the best and the brightest, if that is your sincere um, objective, you will always find uh, Black people that needs to be included in that category. Um, so I am a strong supporter of it because things were done intentionally to leave Black people out. And it's sort of disingenuous to say after those things were done intentionally to leave black people out. Oh, now let's, since we stopped, everybody's on equal footing. No, it's impossible to catch up after something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm certainly coming around to that way of thinking. It's, it's naive to say we're just talking about people. We're not on a level playing field. So do we need to speak up a little more and ask why we're not seeing more people of color on our TV screens, on, on our radio airwaves. I was at a hotel yeah. recently and I, I, I mentioned to my husband that the only people with black skin that I saw, and I'm almost ashamed to say this to you, were cleaning the rooms. They, oh, were, that's, that's they weren't ridiculous. behind the bar. They weren't right. behind the reception. Should I have said that to that hotel uh, when I was well, checking I, out in a nice way? Should I have asked that go. question? There you go. I am imploring whites to step up right now and say, why do things look the way that they look? Why, where, because if you're interested in my opinion in the best and the brightest to be included, that we must say something and that we may, has to include whites as well. And as you just said as well, you can say it in a very civil fa fashion uh, that actually hopefully serves as a sort of a reminder and a person can say, listen, I appreciate you bringing that up, we're gonna we're gonna address this. Um, I was in, and 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 I would say this, Claire, and that is, it is your human duty to do that and to say, why aren't black people included in this environment here? Where are they? And I did, and that's the way that I live my life relative to black people, as relative as well as relative to the inclusion of women. I served on the board of directors of a Fortune 500 company. We went to another country to visit, to have a board of directors meeting. When we got there, I took note of the fact that out in the factory, there were no women out in the factory. And so I said, what the heck is going on here? They said, well, you know, we don't have an extra bathroom. When we convened in the boardroom, I said, this is absolutely BS. We need to put some women out there and make sure that we are getting the best and the brightest. And if we don't do it, then I'm leaving this board of directors. And I said, this is crap. I will not accept this as a, there's no excuse for it. And we're, we're denying ourselves the opportunity to get some brilliant people who can work here. And we're, um, we're closing it off because of their gender. No way. So Clara, I absolutely encourage everybody 
to step up and say something and say something in a constructive way that results in the inclusion of black people. Small steps make big changes. Well, the book is called A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues, What You Can Do Right Now to Help the Black Community. Stephen Rogers, thank you very much for coming on. Claire, you're the best. Thank you very much for inviting me. I sincerely appreciate it. Coming up after the break, editor of Health and Living magazine, Yvonne Hogan, on what she's learned from her latest health and wellness journey. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yvonne Hogan is the editor of Health and Living magazine with the Irish Independent, and she recently enlisted the help of dietitian Orla Walsh, Siobhan Byrne of Body Burn on Movement and Anna Geary to learn more about nutrition and, as I say, movement and mindset. And she joins me on the line now to talk us through her experience. Hello, Yvonne. How are you? I'm great, Claire. How are you? I'm good. This kind of thing is, is right up my street, having done something similar on this show. Talk to me about the idea coming together and, and why you wanted to do it. Well, I suppose I followed your um, series as well in the Sunday Independent because I think like I would be very similar to you in the sense of having two children, being very busy. And I suppose I kept in my head, I kept thinking when I'm thin again, I'll do this. When the children are older, I'll be able to go to the gym five times a week and I'll be able to, you know, prepare my meals in advance. And then I realized that's probably not going to happen for about five or six years. So am I going to wait until that perfect scenario, which won't happen? Or will I just try and work around the logistics of my life now. So that was kind of the impetus behind Fit Summer. And when you think about health and wellness, were you overwhelmed by it? Or did you see the kind of wealth of information you had through your through your job that you could draw from? Well, I suppose, you see, I'm spoiled for, for that, of course, with health and living because You've kind of everybody at your fingertips. But do you know what I realized, Claire, when I was the first week or so of doing it was it was more about kind of challenging my own kind of brainwashing by the diet culture. Do you know what I mean? That we have this idea in our heads that like when you're this weight and when you're this body fat, you're perfect and then you're good to go. And until you're there, you're kind of waiting do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind no, of a, completely, completely. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's very common, and I think it's happening to a lot of my friends and stuff as well. And actually, we have a piece in on Monday, written by Jackie Lynham, who was always very skinny, and I was fascinated to read it because she had the exact same thoughts about her body and stuff as as I would. Like I would be carrying probably about like fifteen to twenty pounds extra after the two children but I was like this is not really a fat thin thing this is a, a culture thing and it's it's a way of you know way we view women and the way we view ourselves and I just really didn't want my daughters to feel that way so I wanted to get a handle on my own head and my own approach to fitness because there's nothing fit about extreme anything yeah I think you're so right and it was one of the biggest eye-openers to me when I went on my health journey because I started out because I was overwhelmed. I didn't know whether I was supposed to be vegan, juicing, lifting mm. weights, running or all of the above. And I'd kind of lost my way and it didn't feel healthy anymore. Um, and I was really surprised to find that my motivations were coming completely from the wrong place because they're always coming from a negative, wanting to to change your body yeah. or, or look a certain way. So 
it's 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 great to hear that you went on the same one and that we're talking about this all the more. So what about the yeah. experts then? How did you choose who you were going to work with? Well, I've worked with Siobhan Byrne for years and she has great body weight workouts because what I wanted, I wanted people to, to buy the paper or, or subscribe and actually have stuff to do, you know, that they're actually getting something as opposed to kind of being sold something. So Siobhan is great for the home workouts because not everybody, the gyms were just about to open actually when we started, but not everybody has access to a gym or time for a gym. So I, I, Siobhan was for the body weight workouts and I've always admired Anna Geary. I think she's the epitome of health and fitness to me. She and she's got a wonderful attitude and she's a very kind of um, empathic person. So I and I always loved her on Instagram. So she I was delighted to get her. And then Orla Walsh is she's a super dietitian and she's so um, she's so realistic in her advice. And so like because you know what the funny thing is, Claire, is about all this. It's all kind of common sense, but we want it to be fancier and we want it to be like a list of five things you can and can't have. Because I suppose we've kind of lost the ability to tune into ourselves and, and like Orla's intuitive eating really, I found that really profound. Like we started off with the magazine that was out on the Saturday and I was putting it together and I was putting a panel of her, you know, 10, 10 kind of pillars of intuitive eating. And one of them was give yourself unconditional permission to eat. And it actually, I actually caught my breath because that to me was the most kind of subversive thought like that you'd actually give yourself permission to eat it, you know, and I, then I realized we're so messed up in terms of we've made things something like eating so complicated you know it's, it's actually quite bizarre yeah and then you're adding stress to something which isn't healthy either. You're listening to Alive and Kicking and I'm talking to Yvonne Hogan, editor of Health and Living magazine on what her latest health journey has taught her. And what did you commit to doing then during this, Yvonne? What have the last few months been like? So what I, I my main thing, Claire, to be honest, was to get out of my head the idea that you can only be fit and healthy. Like the big thing for me, like I did a fitness journey about, oh God, 10 years ago. And I got really lean and I wrote about it and it was a re- it became a huge part of my identity that I was, you know, this was kind of what I was writing about at the time and what I was, you know, it was what people spoke to me about. And it was how I kind of, it became a huge part of my identity. And I was really happy now, I have to say, but I had no children. And I had all, all I had to do was work and do whatever I wanted. So I was in the gym for like an hour a day, five days a week, and I would, had a very strict diet. So it was like all protein and vegetables and, and it, it, there was an awful lot of planning. And it kind of, looking back on it, it kind of controlled everything. I remember my husband used to get really annoyed when we were on holidays in Spain because we could only go to the really expensive restaurants because all I would eat was like fish and salad. <laughs> so that was, I was kind of trying to, in my head then, Claire, that was Yvonne good. Do you know what I mean? That was good Yvonne, that was fit Yvonne. And if you can't do that, just eat whatever you want or you know so I had to I was trying to challenge that kind of mentality in myself because I have two children and you're making and especially with the lockdown and school you know you're making breakfast lunch and dinner and like you're not going to give them steak for breakfast lunch and dinner do you know what I mean so I had to kind of loosen my rules around food 
Now, so that was what I was doing there was to try and de kind of decategorize foods into good and bad and just do what Orla said and give yourself unconditional permission to eat. And just so I just ate my lunch, my breakfast and my dinner with the kids, but there was pasta, there was all these things. And what I found was in the evenings, I didn't indulge in my usual habit of like eating loads of chocolate or eating loads of crisps or whatever. So I did find that the not restricting myself during the day kind of killed that habit, which I hadn't been able to kill for for a long, long time. Because you felt like you were restricted. So then you might let the the wheels off a little bit then in the evening. It's 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 mainly the mindset then that you seem yeah. to have changed. Is yeah, because I love exercising. Like I, I was so I was nearly the first person into the gym when it opened again. So the exercising is not a chore for me. I love it. I love weight training and I'll do I go every second day. So that was never an issue for me. It's the, the food and it's the, the, my head and the food, if you get me. So going forward, do you think this will now become a part of, of your everyday? Because I, I suppose something I learned as well is that it's, it's not a three month plan. It's, it's a lifelong no. plan that you still have ups and downs on and still have learning to do on. Is that the same for you? Definitely. And I suppose I'm not even um, not even thinking of it as a plan. Now, I, d- I need to clean up around the edges now. Do you know what I mean? I need to like it. it I need to kind of make more of a schedule in terms of doing the grocery shop and doing the thing because it's so busy you know yourself especially in the summer when the kids are off school I haven't really had time to prepare things properly but I'm really happy with the fact that I don't go around giving out to myself anymore or feeling like I'm not good enough or feeling like it's it's I do feel that I'm kind of detoxifying myself from that kind of diet culture yeah and this idea and I mean even you look you saw in the papers there uh, at the end of the week the girls playing um volleyball in the bikinis like our whole culture and this idea that you know women have to look a certain way and be a certain way it's so ridiculous yeah and not necessarily healthy I'm not sure sometimes how I feel about no. the whole real body movement either because we're still just reducing women down to how they look regardless whether we're celebrating a thin, lean body or a body with stretch marks. We're still just reducing oh, it down with you more. to appearance. I just think we need yeah. to stop talking about it altogether. But we are moving in the right direction. As the editor of a health and wellness magazine, have you noticed a shift? Are we starting to get less faddy when we talk about health and wellness and a bit more realistic? It's Yes, yes. But also it's become a lot more kind of difficult in the sense of so like there's so you really need to know who your experts are and who your kind of marketeers are and like I started doing this job when I came back from maternity leave with Ava who's now eight and I I've made I've learned so much over the years just like the market of people it's like you said when you started your um, fitness journey were overwhelmed you didn't know whether to eat this or that or be this or that that's because there's such a there's a the proliferation of not necessarily great information out there marketed at people. So I suppose I see my job as trying to making sure that everybody who speaks to a subject is in their lane and is kind of qualified to speak to their subject, if you know what I mean. So Absolutely. And also there's a, there's a lot more because there's so much social media commenting. I think that's really changed how we do our jobs in the sense of you're more accountable 
you know, like, like I would kind of, I don't overlook, but I would kind of check and see what the responses are to stuff on social media and make sure you're hitting the right tone. And I think a lot of the stuff we did before was very um, much feeding into the diet culture. But I suppose as you evolve, you learn and you, you change how you do it. Amazing. Well, it's really heartening to think that you set out like me kind of excited that in three months you were going to show everyone your abs and instead you emerged <laughs> three months later with a healthier mindset, being a little bit yeah. kinder to yourself and, and throwing off the shackles of diet culture. Well, people can read Health and Living magazine every Monday in the Irish Independent. Yvonne Hogan, keep going and thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week.